Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Take a seat. As you are being seated, if you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, somewhere near you. Uh, If you don't have one in the seat in front of you, uh, just raise your hand and someone by you can hand it to you. You will absolutely need the Bible today. uh, And just make sure you keep that Bible open during the whole sermon because we will be referring back to it many times throughout the sermon. So, So go ahead and find your seat. Make sure you have your Bibles open. If you're in the Red Bible, uh, is page 853 in the Red Bible. And uh, today's passage is on Mark chapter 15. Uh, The preaching is going to be on starting in verse 42. But I want to start back in verse 29 of Mark 15 to make sure that we have the context of what is going to happen today. The setting for verse 29 is Golgotha, the place of the skull outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is bloodied and naked and hanging on a cross. And that is the context for us this morning. Mark 15, verse 29. We'll read through verse 37. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Lord God, as we come to you today, we come treading on sacred ground. On the most glorious and holy passages in all of scripture. On the most important event in the history of humanity. And so let us come with reverence and awe and self-examination as we once again sit in the shadow of the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Recently, a family member of mine who I am very close with and love very much uh, had some very horrible things happen. Uh, over the beginning of the year, they have just had a really horrible year, and that horrible year has gone so bad that it actually led to a psychotic break where they had to be checked into a hospital. And as they were in the hospital, they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. They were imagining things going on that weren't going on. Uh, they didn't trust the doctors, and so they went to take the medication, which would help them get better. Uh, they didn't even know who their mom was. The doctor said it was not good. Finally, after about two weeks, uh, my relative got out of the psychiatric hospital and was flown across the country to get into a long-term inpatient facility. And so as she and her mom were driving around in the rental car waiting to check her in, they were singing one of their favorite songs, which is, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And when they got done singing, she said, Mom, will I ever get my sunshine back again? I'm curious, what seemingly hopeless situation are you facing today? Maybe it is the mental or physical illness of yourself or of a loved one. Maybe it is addictions or sin struggles in your life that no matter how hard you try, you seem powerless against. Maybe loved ones have betrayed you and the relationship seems irreconcilable. Maybe it's academic troubles or financial troubles or other relational or medical troubles. If you are here today and you're facing a seemingly hopeless situation, you can imagine what it was like for the followers of Jesus as they stood in the shadow of the cross. I know today we come to celebrate the resurrection and we will do that. But for a few minutes, if you would with me, forget about the resurrection. Jesus, the hope of so many, hung on the cross. While on the cross, he was belittled and mocked and degraded by the Romans, by the religious leaders, and even by the rotten thieves hanging next to him. To make matters far worse, he was forsaken by God who he had a perfect, intimate, wonderful relationship with for all eternity. And not only was he forsaken by God, but Jesus had also become the object of the wrath of God for sin. Great darkness covered the land as if someone had blown out the sun like it was a candle. And in apparent tragedy, Jesus, the great hope of his father, breathed, of his fathers, breathes his last and dies in shame upon the cross. At this point, there's a great earthquake, so violent that it tears the temple curtain in two. The world has seemingly gone to hell. Jesus has been abandoned. Jesus is dead. The story is over. What a spectacular collapse. What a magnificent failure. What a horrible embarrassment for this man, Jesus, who claimed to be somebody. For the followers of Jesus, evil has won the day. Everyone feels helpless. Everything feels hopeless. And so what happens next? What happens next in the quiet after the quake? What happens next when the sun starts to glow again? What happens next when the crowd is ushered away and Jesus is hanging there upon the cross? Well, it is 
the story of the resurrection. And the story of the resurrection starts with the burial of Jesus. Look in your Bible with me at verse 42 and 43. It says, and when everything had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, which is Friday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Let's pause there and focus a little bit on this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We find out uh, in other gospels that Joseph of Arimathea is a follower of Jesus, but he is a secret follower of Jesus out of fear. Here we see that he is on the council, meaning that he is a part of the Sanhedrin. Matter of fact, he is a respected or prominent member of that Sanhedrin. And what makes this so interesting is that it was the people of the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin, that hours before this went and stirred up the crowds, calling out for Pilate to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Now, now, Joseph of Arimathea was not among those stirring people up. He was against that. But here, after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea takes great courage to go to Pilate and to ask for the body of Jesus. And this took great courage because this public pronouncement of his devotion to Jesus certainly would have kicked him off of the Sanhedrin, which would have ended his source of income. He probably would have been uh, uh, shoveled away by his friends, by his family. And yet for some reason here, even after it seems hopeless, after everything seems done, Joseph of Arimathea says, I want to give this man a proper burial. If he didn't give Jesus a proper burial, Jesus would have hung on the cross and probably been bird food. But he wanted to give him a proper Jewish burial. And so he took courage and he goes and he asked Pilate for the body. Verse 44 and 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Pilate was shocked that Jesus was already dead. Crucifixion was supposed to be a means of agonizing pain that was supposed to last several days. But even within a few hours, Jesus died, which is such a reminder of how brutally beaten Jesus was. If you remember, he was so brutally beaten that he couldn't even take his cross to Calvary. They had to get Simon of Serene to help him because he was so weak, so bloodied. And because of that, he died so quickly. And so Pilate summons the centurion to verify Jesus' death. And as we know from the other gospel accounts, the centurion, just to make sure that Jesus is actually dead, takes a spear, shoves it up underneath Jesus' ribs, up into his heart to puncture his heart, just to make sure that Jesus really is dead. And so once his death is confirmed, Pilate gives the body of, Joseph, uh, of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 46 and 47. And Joseph brought a bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. There's some important details here in these verses. First off, if you have a ESV study Bible, you might have a picture in there like this of the tomb. And you can see this, this is probably similar to something that Jesus had laid on. We know that Jesus laid across from the opening of the tomb because the women saw where he was laid. 
And, and it had this, this circular stone that would be rolled in front of the door. This was only for the richest of rich. There's only a few of these that are found in Jerusalem today because it was for the richest people. And the reason why they had, they had this rolling stone is because the way it was traditionally done is they would take the body of a loved one into this grave and they would set it down. And then a year later, they would open the tomb and they would take the bones of this loved one and put it into an ossuary. And so that was the plan for Jesus. And so the stone is rolled in front of the opening. And so here we are Friday night. Jesus is dead and buried. Satan is celebrating. The Sanhedrin is smiling. And the disciples are beyond devastated. And the reason why they are beyond devastated is because Jesus was not only their friend. Jesus was not only their teacher. Jesus was their hope of salvation. Jesus was the only one who had any promise of defeating their enemies. And Jesus was their ticket out of the miseries of this life. He was the only one that they thought could help them in their hopeless situation. To give you maybe an example uh, or an illustration, imagine, I don't mean to make light of death, but this is the reality of our world, as awkward as it is for us to talk about, that death is a reality. Imagine if you are with your best friend and your best friend is a spelunker that he or she loves to go caving. And so they take you to this cave that is vast, that has all of these different caves and things that go through it. And so you're, you're going in this cave with this friend and as you go through this cave, you see all of these side chutes and they go this way when you would have gone that way. And, and there's, it's just an expansive cave and you get deep down into the cave and, and while you're deep down in the cave, a tragedy happened and your friend dies. Now you would be certainly sad and grieved over the death of your friend, but your, your grief and your misery is compounded by the fact that your friend is the only one who knows how to get out of that cave. You are stuck. They were your only hope of getting out alive. This is what the disciples are facing on that Good Friday. Not only was their friend and teacher dead and buried in the tomb, but so was their hope of salvation. They were completely devastated. Now that's the bad news of Good Friday. But then comes the good news of Resurrection Sunday. Look with me, Mark 16, verse 1 and 2. The resurrection of Jesus says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. By the wise providence of God and his timing, I've never seen this before, but, but by God's providential wise timing, Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus down and buried the body of Jesus in his tomb, and he did kind of a half burial process. And the reason why he did a half burial process is because he ran out of time because the Sabbath had arrived, and so he wraps him in, in, in shroud and puts him in the grave, but the burial process was not complete. If the burial process was complete, these women would not have been coming the next day, but, but they come on Sunday, not the next day, the, the third day, they come with spices that they have bought to anoint the body of Jesus, to, to make it not stink so much as he rots and decays. Now, something very interesting in this passage is that in the course of 10 verses, just 10 verses, these two Marys are, are identified by name. If you look back at 1540, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
dying. It says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger and Joseph and Salome. And then you skip down to verse 47. When Joseph takes Jesus down and buries him in the tomb, verse 47 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then here we get to verse 2. And these girls come with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. And the reason why their names are listed three times in the space of 10 verses is because they were skeptics of the resurrection of Jesus in that day, just as there are today. There were people in that day that said, you know what? Those women, they were hysterical with grief. They went to the wrong tomb. They forgot the address. They didn't know where they were going. They just went to a tomb. They saw the tomb was empty and they just assumed Jesus has risen. But the problem with that is that these were the women, the disciples were gone. These were the women who were at the foot of the cross, who saw bloody Jesus. These were the women who saw Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus down. These were the women who saw Joseph put Jesus into the tomb and saw exactly where Jesus was laid. These were the women that saw the stone rolled over the tomb. And so as these two women come back, they're not going to get the wrong address. They know exactly what tomb to go to. And so that's an important detail that Mark is trying to highlight here. Another important detail, which seems obvious, but we must highlight, is that the reason they were coming with spices to anoint Jesus' dead body, the reason why they bought these spices is because they expect that Jesus would be dead. That's why they brought the spices. There was no thought in their imagination that Jesus would not be dead. They bought the spices because they believed Jesus was dead. Verse three through six. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, an angel, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place. See the place where they laid him. In the other gospel accounts, we know that it was an angel that rolled away the stone from the grave. And the reason why the angel rolled away the stone from the grave was not so that Jesus could get out of the grave, but so that the Marys and the witnesses could get into the grave. Jesus had passed through walls in his resurrected state. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away. The stone was rolled away for you and for me and for those in that day that they could get into the tomb and they could see there was no body. Now, at this point in time, Jesus' resurrection is just speculation. And so he sends the ladies away. Verse 7 says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If you look back again, verse 14, sorry, verse 28 of the last chapter, before Jesus died, he said to his disciples, But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. The region of Galilee was about 80 miles from Jerusalem, 80 miles from the chaos, 80 miles from the danger. And so the angel tells Mary to remind the apostles, to tell the apostles to go and meet Jesus in Galilee just as he said before he died. And then we get to verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were a uh, 
afraid. And so another passage, Mark 28 puts it this way. It says, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. These women were joyfully running scared. <laughs> there was a scary joy that had overcome their hearts and overcome their souls. Have you ever experienced scary joy? I've experienced scary joy. Uh, you know, when I was, um, when Trish and I had, had dated for about a year, I decided that I wanted to marry her. Um, I lived 500 miles away from her family, and so I decided that I would call her father to ask for her hand in marriage. That is a scary joy. Uh, her, her dad is a great man, loves Jesus, loves people, but he also kind of has this Chuck Norris status, right? Like he weighs half my weight, but could probably break me with a flick of his pinky finger. Like that's her dad, okay? And so as, as, as I was getting ready that day to call her dad, my palms were sweaty, I was anxious, I was a little bit scared, but I was also filled with joy. You know, there's a fear of what if he says no, or what if he says later, or what if he just says, get lost, loser, right? But there's also the joy of what if he says yes? What if I get to marry her? Five years later, we experienced another scary joy when we found out Trisha was pregnant. There's a joy of, yay, we're gonna have a child, but the fear of, oh no, am I gonna break this child? Like, I hope he's durable. Um, I don't know, does God make him durable? Because I drop a lot of things, and this is kind of scary, right? Am I gonna be a good dad? Am I gonna make enough money to provide for my family? It's a scary joy. Even if you aren't that far in your life and experienced those things, you've ridden a roller coaster, that's scary joy. These women are feeling scary joy. They are scared. What in the world is going on? Did someone steal Jesus' body? Is the angel gonna come and get us? Is anyone gonna believe us? They are scared. But they are also running with great joy. Oh, could it be that our beloved friend and savior Jesus is alive? Could it be that Jesus did the impossible? Could it be that he actually conquered death itself? Could it be that he's going to be our forever savior and king as we had hoped just a few days earlier? And so they're running back to the disciples with scary joy, but their trip is cut short. Matthew 28, verse nine, we read this. It says, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Up to this point, again, Jesus' resurrection was merely speculation by some dude dressed in a white dress in the tomb. But now the resurrection has become a reality because not only did they see Jesus, not only did they hear Jesus, but most importantly, they touched Jesus. They grabbed his feet to worship Jesus, which means that Jesus was not a hallucination, not a figment of their hopeful imagination, that Jesus was really raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection appearances does not st stop here. On that resurrection Sunday, he also appears to two men traveling to Emmaus. And then he appears to nine of, sorry, 10 of his disciples. Later that week, about a week later, he appears to 11 of his disciples. And then just as promised, Jesus appears to the disciples up in Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee, where he provides a great miraculous catch of fish for them and then eats breakfast with them, something a hallucination does not do. 
But then maybe the most amazing of all Christ's resurrection appearances is told to us in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll refer to that chapter quite a bit. But in 1 Corinthians 15, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostle Paul says this. says, then he, talking about the resurrected Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I know you're skeptical. I know it seems too good to be true that Jesus is raised from the dead, but there's hundreds of people who have seen him. Go talk to them, go ask them. The evidence of Jesus' resurrection was so overwhelming that unbelievers like Jewish historian Josephus recorded it as a fact. Does it take faith to believe that Jesus is alive? Absolutely. It takes tremendous faith to believe that Jesus is alive. But given all of the evidence of his resurrection, most of which I did not even cover today, but given all of the evidence of his resurrection, it actually takes more faith to believe that Jesus did not raise from the dead. And so let me ask you, do you believe? Do you believe not only, as the angel says, Jesus has risen, but do you believe, as this says, Jesus is risen? That Jesus is alive today, ruling and reigning in heaven. You see, this is not a small issue for you. This is maybe the most important question you will ever face. Do you believe that Jesus is alive? Because not only does all of Christianity hang in the balance on how you answer this question, but your entire eternity does. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Friends, this is the true resurrection story, that Jesus died and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and all hope seemed lost. But on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead and he is the first fruits of the resurrection of all who trust in him. And so this is the resurrection story, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But finally, we get to what I think is maybe the best part, which is the endlessness of Jesus. If you look in your Bibles after verse eight and before verse nine, you will probably see a remark in there that says something like this. It says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, okay? I want to explain that to you a little bit because I know it's a little bit confusing. Uh, and I need to make it quick because there's a lot of good stuff to talk about here. But College Church uh, in Massachusetts put together a chart. And I think we have a copy of it up here. Um, what you can see is this is a, a chart of ancient manuscripts comparisons, okay? And so you see the author on the left from uh, up top, the yellow box, author, date written, earliest copies, approximate time span between the original copy when it was originally written and then the oldest copy that we have on record for ourselves. And then the number of copies and the accuracy of the copy. So if you look at the red one, the red box, you see the writings of Caesar were written 100 to 44 BC. The earliest manuscript that we have of that is from 900 AD, which is about a thousand year time span. Friends, a thousand years is a really long time. And then when you get down to the blue and you have Homer and the Iliad and you have that's in 900 BC, um, is when it was written. The earliest copy that we have is from 400 BC. And so that's a 500 year span, which is much better. 
And there are 643 copies of that. And so the accuracy of the copies is 95%. But then we get to the New Testament. And the first, it's written in the first century AD. And the earliest copy that we have is from the second century AD, which is less than 100 years, really less than 50 years in many instances. And there are over 5,600 copies of that in the original Greek. As a matter of fact, there are about 19,000 more copies in other languages from that time frame. And so what happens here is that as people are discovering more and more copies of the New Testament, what they're finding out is that the end from Mark 16, 9 through the end is not in the original manuscripts. Furthermore, the language in 9 through 20 is different than the rest of the book. Now, there are other scholars, uh, the minority, who would argue that it should be included in the book, and that's okay. It's not worth starting a new denomination over, to be honest with you. But what I do want to point out is that this remark, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include, Mark 16, 9 through 20, should not make us question the reliability of the rest of Scripture, but reinforce it. Because there are so many manuscripts to draw from and so much scrutiny of these manuscripts, and the bar is so high that we can be assured of the rest of the reliability of the New Testament. And so again, back on point, most of the scholars believe the gospel of Mark ends in verse 8. But did you notice how verse 8 ends? Let's look at it again. It says, and they, talking about the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Women running away from a tomb with scary joy and telling no one. Can I be honest? That is a horrible way to end a gospel. That is a horrible way to end a biography. It's a horrible way to end any story. But can I tell you why I love this horrible ending? I love this horrible ending to the gospel of Mark for this one reason. Because it's not the ending. And the reason it is not the ending is because Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. The beginning of a brand new story where the impossible is possible, where Jesus is king and savior and Lord forever, where hopeless situations are transformed, where dead people are made alive. I love this horrible ending to the gospel of Mark because it is not an ending. Because the resurrection story and power of Jesus has gone on as he appears to people in those early days. They experienced the resurrection power of Jesus as it continues throughout the history of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection story continues in us today who trust in him. I love this horrible ending because it is no ending. Because there is another ending. That is coming when this resurrected Jesus will return and his creation and his rule will reign over all things and his resurrection power will be to make all things new again. And that not that, and when Christ returns, that ending is not an ending either. It is only another beginning. And when Christ returns and he redeems the entire world with his resurrection power, and we are there forever and ever and ever and ever, that is only the beginning. Because then there is ever and ever and ever and ever. I love the horrible ending of the gospel of Mark because it is not an ending. It is just the beginning of Jesus' resurrection story that has no ending. It is a story that a gracious, merciful God has included us in. A story of the righteous, generous, gracious, resurrecting rule and reign of Jesus forever. Praise God 
Alleluia. About a year ago, two of our members lost their grandson named Ashton in a tragic accident. At least it was an accident from our perspective. Ashton was 11 years old. This past week, his dad, Luke, wrote a post on Facebook, a letter to Ashton, and I reached out to Luke to ask if I could share this, and he was, he was happy for me to do so. I'm just gonna read a small portion of it. It's a lot longer than this, but he says this. Dear Ashton, it's been a long and lonely year since you left. I now know you had already met our Savior and given the choice, decided to forego your beaten and broken earthly body for a renewed body and the presence of Christ and God himself. My eyes swell with tears at that decision, but I know any of us would have made the same choice. So for you, a new beginning, the most glorious and amazing experience any of us could ever hope for. I want you to know that mom, Mia, and I talk about you every day, and we think about you every minute. We miss you, and that's a lot compact into a single statement. But we also envy you. As we know that you are experiencing now, what you're experiencing now is infinitely more amazing than what we could offer. It says, as if embracing Christ wasn't enough to eagerly welcome our own passing of earthly body, we now add to our list of immediate embraces when we too cross from death to life. I love you, my son. And then his final line. I cannot express how eagerly I look forward to seeing our eternal joy journey. And then here he says, begin. Begin together. Brothers and sisters, why do I love this horrible ending to the gospel of Mark? Because it is not an ending. It is only the beginning of the rule and reign of the resurrection power of Jesus that raises us from spiritual death to life and this time and then physical death to physical life and the time to come. I love this horrible ending to Mark. How could you not love this horrible ending to Mark? It is the hope for all the hopeless situations in the world, knowing that there is a resurrected world yet to come where all the hopeless situations of this world will become untrue and be a distant memory. Friends, I have good news for you this Easter Sunday. There is going to be a fantastic ending to sin one day. There is going to be a glorious ending to death one day. There is going to be an awesome ending to hopelessness one day. There is going to be a terrific ending to Satan one day. But there will never, never, never be an ending to the resurrection story of Jesus. And for all trust in him. Let me end with this. Um, at the Good Friday service, Pastor David Gallagher uh, shared the beginning of a poem from Pastor Robert Cunningham, who was our speaker at our men's retreat, and it was a thought on death and, and resurrection. And so I'd like to share the end of that poem with you. Um, it will be on the screen for you to read along, hopefully. Let's try that. There we go. I believe David said he was in a graveyard when he wrote this, but I'm not positive on that. But this is what it says. But then the cross, then our king in a grave, all promise, all hope bound to a cave. Another great story neath the ruins of history, but in the grandest of twists, the cave was empty. Calvary's darkness, now Easter morning, the lamb who was silenced has come forth roaring. 
with glorious news to a world despairing. His promise to us, this is only the beginning. This the first moment of a new reality. This the first chapter of a whole new story. This the first birth of a new humanity. This the first twinkling of a whole new glory. Jesus, the first fruit of the resurrection harvest. Like our Savior before us, we shall rise from the darkness. Yet ashes to ashes, yet dust to dust. But what happened to Jesus will happen to us. Awaken to dwell in perfect creation. Awaken to claim our no condemnation. Every pain restored, every sadness untrue. No more war, all things new. But it's just impossible, our doubts still cry. Yes, but Easter, now let us reply. With certain heart and audacious grin, if it happened once, it shall happen again. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that your resurrection is not the end of the story, but just the beginning of the story of your resurrection power, which has raised us, your people, from the dead, not only now, but for all eternity. And so, Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful for your sacrifice that, that seemed hopeless but how you have conquered death on our behalf to give us a new beginning, a resurrection beginning in this life and in the life to come. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded that, that this did not come easy, that, that you held yourself upon the cross out of love for us to die for our sins so that you could raise and, and impart your resurrecting power to us through your Holy Spirit. And so we come with Humility and meekness to receive, remembering your sacrifice, but also the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come with our resurrected Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.